Hello, and welcome to Lasting Values. I'm your host, Brian Blackstone, and this is the monthly sustainability podcast that looks at how you can make actual impact with your investments. Brought to you by Credit Suisse. Today, we're speaking to two experts on how high-tech approaches to food and agriculture are transforming our food system, whether this is a good thing, and why we're even talking about this in the first place, given everything else that's happening in the world. We welcome Roger Leinhardt, founder of Blue Horizon and Live Kindly, which invests in scaling animal-free food, including in alternative proteins and sustainable food systems. And we also welcome Jason Lusk, agricultural economist, Purdue University professor, and author of Unnaturally Delicious. Jason, what's your view on this, the the role of technology, especially in light of the huge disruption that we've seen in commodity and other prices? Technology is and has been the solution to our food security problems. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, the population uh, bomb kinds of books. Uh, None of that customism really came to fruition. And a lot of it was because we found ways to increase yields and produce more food, interestingly, on less land in a lot of parts of the country. And Roger, what's your view on that? When I heard technology and food in the same sentence the first time, I felt like food is technology. And uh, by now, I believe it. It's, it's just about producing more environmental friendly, producing more food with less land and water. And I think uh, technology will uh, play in a tremendous, uh, tremendous role to be much more efficient. And if we use the right practices in agriculture, but also then turning this into more convenience products by using the right technology, I'm 100% sure we will have abundance uh, of, of food with less land and water use. So technology for me, absolutely a key point. Can you talk about some of the most interesting high-tech developments that you're seeing in agriculture and what the effects might be? Yeah, I think when I look at a lot of the big environmental problems we're facing, I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic that we're going to conjole people or farmers to change behavior on their own. I'm much more optimistic about the role of technology, inter, either in introducing new foods that taste better, or in the case of farmers, providing them tools and technologies that lessen reliance on you know certain inputs. So the, the big data, the big ag uh, sort of uh, ag data revolution is really here. Um, you know, there are immense amounts of data coming off farms, the kinds of, of sensors that are today on tractors, but most tractors in any large scale farm these days drive themselves. Um, rows are much straighter than they used to be back when I was a kid um, because they're laser guided, you know, planting and harvesting. But it's more than just that. And I think what we're, you know, already is happening and is continuing to develop is the ability to make more precise recommendations, not just on a field level, but a subfield level. You know, which variety of corn or soy are you going to pl- on, on plant in this acre or hectare? Which, you know, which fertilizer? And, and can you use that fertilizer more judiciously? Here at my university, Purdue University, there's an, actually an undergraduate competition of agricultural engineers every year from all over the country. They come here, they test out robots, uh, self, purely autonomous robots to control. You know, the, the competition varies from year to year, but one of the competitions has been on weed control. And some of the things these students come up with is amazing. The, the precision application of fertilizer is here, is being used on many farms. Um, you know, real-time soil sensors, water sensors are, are beginning to come into practice. 
And I think these are really exciting developments because it gives farmers the tools to be able to measure the output. So we haven't really been able to measure in, in a way. And, and then, you know, one aspect of that measurement, I suppose, is also accountability. Uh, you can be held more accountable when you can measure uh, outputs that are coming off those farms. So I, I'm very excited about a lot of what I see going on at my university and others on this space. What role do you think technology has in helping both Europe and the world become less dependent on wheat imports? Now, that's not a quick fix. You're not going to produce more wheat tomorrow with technology. But if we don't invest today, we won't reap those returns later. I will say, though, um, despite the crisis today, I don't think we should turn our backs on trade. Trade is a form of insurance and resilience. Agriculture is a seasonal business. It's affected by weather. We want the ability to import from other countries when we have a bad year, say here at home or in our region. So, so trade is a mechanism for dealing with a lot of the disruptions we have on the weather and sometimes even, even um, you know, geopolitical side of things. Um, but that being said, I also understand some of the motivations for making sure you can have an, enough domestic production at times to uh, deal with, with uh, shortages that may occur. So how do you see the fact that, that, that we've had this dramatically higher prices affecting innovation, affecting productivity? Is this something that's going to spur new techniques, new technologies? There is this old concept in the economics literature called induced innovation, which is exactly what, what you're referring to, Brian. The, the fact that higher prices encourage people to innovate, enter the market, find new ways to do things, to, to try to capture the benefits of those higher prices. It's, it's related to an old saying that the listeners have probably heard many times that the cure for high prices is high prices, um, that, it, that encourages investment in the space. Again, innovation, I think, is absolutely critical, but it's not, a, it's not a quick fix. It's something that takes time. Those prices won't turn down overnight. But if again, if, if people don't enter, start trying to think about ways to deal with the problem now, uh, it, it won't, we won't see resolution a year or two years from now. And Roger, what's your view on that? I tend to think in terms of uh, energy prices that when the, when the price of oil skyrockets, people start talking about solar energy or finding new ways to, or fracking or finding new ways to, to, to produce more um, oil and, and, and other energy commodities. Does the same, uh, are the same factors at play when it comes to food? Yeah, I think I think you obviously have an industry that is established, that works, that has a supply chain that is very proven. So you, you could see during COVID, uh, that that uh, obviously the let's say the animal protein producing industry was just more equipped and more ready to produce more out of the gate and for plant-based companies that are all uh, still startups uh, that for them it was it was uh, more difficult to keep uh, to keep the supply chain up and ready uh, this will change over the next few years but usually when you have a crisis uh, people also tend to go back to their usual behavior it would be would, uh, that would be the classic product and the already established industry just can easier scale and easier handle these circumstances. But I think the new industry is adapting fast and uh, will be ready to scale and, and handle crisis better in a year or two. And Jason, let me turn to you on the topic of, of industrial farming. What do you say to counter its bad reputation versus more, quote unquote, sustainable farming? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm probably a bit of a uh, counter trend on these terms. Uh, I think there's a lot good about the changes we've seen in agriculture over the last century. And, and the story is really one, you know, this, you see this in Europe and the U.S., largely uh, declining numbers of farmers and increases in farm size. That's often what people are referring to when they're talking about industrialization. Sometimes it also refers to more specialization in certain crops, so maybe less, less uh, diversification. 
Um, you know, I, I think it's a mixed bag, uh, but I, I tend to view some of those changes that have happened in a, in a more positive light than some. And it, it really relates to uh, how you want to look at, say, carbon impacts or other kind of environmental impacts. If you, if you look at them on a per unit or per bushel produced, often this large scale efficient production is going to look very good um, because they've intensified. They figured out how to how to get more bushels from each each acre of land. Uh, more animals using less water um, and, and these sorts of things. I, I, I'm a big proponent of the view that productivity is a cornerstone of sustainability. If we can figure out how to get more using fewer of our natural resources, that is a win for the environment. Of course, it's not the only thing. So I, I tend to, to view some of the changes we've seen in a more positive light. The world obviously is not perfect. We have uh, big problems ahead of us. Um, but I, I don't take the view that we're going to solve those problems in any meaningful way by reverting to a 1940s or 50s kind of agriculture. It's going to take technology and it's going to take working with the large scale farmers that we have today. In the U.S., 7.5 percent of farms produce 80 percent of the value of ag output. If you want to make a dent, you need to be working with those 7 percent of farms. But for the poorest billion people in the world, it's a huge proportion is smallholder farmers. So what can the rich world, the, the, the developed world, do to support these farmers to increase productivity? Uh, Roger, why don't I start with you on that one? Yeah, I, I, I believe in, in uh, smallholder farmers. And I think it's, it's all also about the local supply chain. You, you obviously just want to connect the farmer with the customer. So, so what, we, what we see is when, when the consumer understands where, where, where their food is coming from and when they even know the farmer or connect with the farmer, uh, that helps them to do direct deals. So, so, so what, what, I see, what I see when I think about little farmers is if they can sell their produce directly to the consumer in the country where they produce, this is a very nice solution. Uh, the, the, the typical example is when you like wine, it's nothing better than drink a wine where you saw the farmer and you tried the wine first time on the farm. So we have a whole relationship uh, to, to, to this farmer and the way he's producing the product. And you can do this with other products. And then people are also willing to pay a little bit of a higher price because they feel like they support the farmer and they know where the money goes to instead, instead of just buying it with a retailer. So I, I think uh, helping smaller farmers is also a process where you bring them closer to the consumer and you don't have three different companies and systems that take margin out of the system. I, I certainly agree that we shouldn't take a paternalistic view towards smallholder farmers in developing countries that you need to do it the way we're doing it, say in the US. Uh, at the same time, we shouldn't take a paternalistic view that you can't use the same technologies we have available to us. <laughs> um, so I'd say, you know, the technologies and practices we, we use in some of the developing world, uh, we, shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't restrict those from, from people in developing countries. And to the extent it makes sense for them and they want to use them and it, and it, and it plays out in their context, uh, making them available and not restricting their opportunities that I think certainly makes sense to me. Um, I also think um, we, should, we should be careful to romanticize the small if, if you pick out a country, uh, any country in the world, and I tell you, the majority of the agricultural producers in this country are small, very, very good chance that's a poor country. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the traditional story in economics of development has often been in agricultural development, moving from smallholder to larger, more, you know, more industrial looking type farms, although in many cases, even in the US, those industrial farms are all family farms still, for the most part. So, you know, uh, but at the same time, I think there, there you know, uh, 
I think there are, are things we should think about in helping promote those smallholder farms from an equity standpoint. I think Roger hit the nail on the head. You know, you're not often, if you're a smallholder farm, you're not going to compete in terms of low cost necessarily, but there are things you can do to compete in higher quality, higher level of service, different forms of competition that I think are, are important. And we can think about questions like, do, do these farmers have access to credit? Do they have access to information? Um, and, and helping those farmers have, have an equal playing field so that they can, uh, there aren't barriers to them to enter these markets. Roger, so your initiative, Farm Transformers, uh, helps farmers transition away from animal farming to plant proteins. What are the technological transitions needed in this process? And how have key measures like yields, soil depletion, water, land use changed for those that have made the move? With the project Farm Transformers, it's it's almost a foundation project that, that we work on. We we are uh, focusing on mostly on chicken farmers there. Yeah? So we are focusing on on people that raise chicken, and uh, they they start to move to to, to technologies. Yeah? They have very small amounts of land. They are not big farmers. So that's more about giving them a different job to do. So maybe maybe growing mushrooms. Yeah? We because mushrooms are a very good protein source. And, and the healthy food anyway, or or you help them uh, to re-educate themselves and maybe work in a precision fermentation in the future, where you grow protein in a tank. So for a lot of farmers, it's not about reutilizing their land, but doing something totally different. And that has a lot to do with uh, with education, but also with governments that need to help with subsidies. And if you look what the Netherlands did. Uh, two months ago, I think, is they they announced a $25 billion budget to help their farmers to move away from from raising cattle uh, to other ways of producing food. And I think this this is a prototype that I would love to see in other countries too. So not only technology, but also the support by the government. We've seen so much change in the world over the last three years, obviously. Um, but one thing that doesn't change much is is, is demographics and the effects of demographics. The, um, the We're going to need to feed an estimated global population of 10 billion by 2050. What's the, what's the way to go? Is it industrial to feed all these people? Is it organic to tailor it to changing consumer preferences? Is there a, is there a silver bullet elsewhere? There's not a single form of agriculture that's going to work best in all settings for all people in all times. It is true that our population is projected to grow, um, you know, in the next several years. I think it would be a mistake to say you have to adopt certain technologies in order to meet that growing demand. Um, the truth is we, we've been able to, because of technological development, meet, meet the needs of that population growth. I don't think we'd want to use that demand as an excuse to adopt practices that we we know have you know clearly disadvantageous impacts on the environment um we we do produce enough food to produce to feed every person in the world today um often at any given point in time the question is more about distribution than it is about more production um but i you know when i think about technology it's not so much uh, a question of you know do we need it is it necessary to feed a growing world population I think I look at that technology as how can we produce the food we want in a responsible way, feel good about the, the production we're having. Can we produce the amount of food we need using fewer inputs and using fewer of our environmental resources? Can we use the science and technology we have to produce new types of food that consumers find as tasty, 
as they did in the past, but that's as affordable and perhaps better for the environment. That that's sort of the role in my technology. None of that is to downplay the role, the, the fact that yes, we will need more calories in the future. If we can keep on the technological pace we have been in the in the past, I feel pretty confident we'll we'll be able to meet that challenge. It seems like during the COVID pandemic, there seemed to be a general sense that it that it highlighted the importance of sustainability in areas like health, education, climate, and food. But during this 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 crisis that, that that the world is in right now, the emphasis seems to be let's plug supply gaps, let's get more, uh, whether it's energy, whether it's food, let's just let's get things back to the trajectory that they should be on. Should we be tabling this discussion for when things calm down? Why are we talking about this now? Is it even more important to be talking about this right now? Uh, absolutely not, and that I think I think. For us, uh, we are in the business of raising money from investors, but also giving it to the right companies to then build a reliable business that produces profits. And uh, we always uh, talk about the plant-based product that uh, needs soy and peas uh, that then are transformed into these plant-based burgers and uh, chicken wings. But there are other technologies coming around the corner. And one of them is precision fermentation. The other one is cultured meat. And that's where you basically brew your food in a tank. Right? So it's it's like brewing beer or how cheese is made. I'm from Switzerland. I know how cheese is made. This is a fermentation technology. And you can do this locally and you don't need big land masses for it. You don't need a lot of water. So when, when we talk to countries like, like uh, uh, the Asian ones, like Singapore, or when we talk to investors in Middle East, they want to produce their own food where they are. And they are, for example, in the middle of the desert. So one of the technologies that you will see being talked about much more over the next few years is precision fermentation and cultured meat. And that's an opportunity to produce food locally for everybody with a fraction of land use, with a fraction of water use, and you can even design the food that it becomes it becomes healthier and, and fits certain needs. So this is the technology that will totally disrupt the food sector and make, make us much more productive. And this needs to happen now because to, to educate people and to, and to produce these products and to, to install infrastructure will still need two, three to five years. It's always important to have these conversations. There are no silver bullets. There are no quick fixes. And if we don't start now, when we really need the solutions 10, 15 years from now, we're not going to have them. And so I think it's important to have these conversations. And you're right, you know, the conversations right now are on, on you know, increasing food prices domestically and abroad, the food price inflation. And so that that does tend to put a, a more of a point on volume of production. And I, I think that is important. But you know, it has raised questions about resiliency and, and how can we make sure we have enough food, not just today, but at, at all times. And I don't think there are easy answers to that question. You know, resiliency, sustainability has a cost. It's not a free lunch. And I think, but thinking about ways we can pursue those goals in a way that's not overly burdensome to consumers. I think that's the other thing in thinking about food. And the reason that it is important at all times, I think, is because lower income households and lower income countries spend a higher share of their income on food. So when you think about things that increase food prices, they tend to have a disproportionate impact on lower income households. Uh, so I, th I think we have to be careful about, um, you know, efforts to improve sustainability and resiliency in ways that that dramatically increase food prices because it does have those distributional consequences. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it and try to find uh, careful and efficient ways 
to deal with it because we will have another crisis in the future. We don't know what it'll be. It'll look different than the one we have today, but if we're not planning today, we won't be prepared in the future. Roger, Jason, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. There's a lot of interesting topics that come up from this debate, and I wanna thank you guys so much for joining us today. Hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify and check in with us every month on Lasting Values, the sustainability podcast by Credit Suisse. Should a bank clean up the ocean? We engage with companies creating ocean impact and preventing plastic pollution practices. We're on it. The information provided herein constitutes general marketing material. It is not investment advice nor otherwise based on a consideration of the personal circumstances of the addressee, nor is it a result of objective or independent research. The information provided herein is not legally binding and it does not constitute an offer or invitation to enter into any type of financial transaction. The information provided herein was produced by a member of Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates, hereafter CS, with the greatest of care and to the best of its knowledge and belief. The information and views expressed herein are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be truthful and reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the completeness and accuracy of the information and, where legally possible, does not accept liability for any direct, indirect, incidental, specific or consequential losses that might arise from making use of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is solely for information purposes and the exclusive use of the recipient and is not intended and should not be construed as legal, accounting, tax nor financial advice provided by CS. If this material is issued and distributed in the US, it is by CSSU, a member of NYSE, FINRA, SIPC and the NFA and CSSU accepts responsibility for its contents. Clients should contact their sales representative and execute transactions through a Credit Suisse subsidiary or affiliate in their home jurisdiction, unless governing law permits otherwise. This material is intended for institutional investors only, not for retail distribution. It may not be reproduced, neither in part nor in full, without the prior written permission of CS. Important information for investors in Germany. The information and views expressed herein are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the content and completeness of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is for the exclusive use of the recipient. Copyright 2021 Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates. All rights reserved.